Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve you and your organization by helping understand how to positively apply behavioral science to your world. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science. And we are so, so grateful that you have chosen to join us. There are lots of options out there for you on how you can spend your time. And we hope that the time spent with us is both enjoyable as well as informative. And I would have to say that we always have a good time doing these. Yeah, it's one of the things that's surprising about this job, Tim. There's definitely a lot of work that goes into these interviewing our guests and grooving with you, well, most of the time, is almost <laughs> always my favorite part of the week. Man, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. This is, I always look forward to the, the times when we do these. And this week is no exception to that. Yeah. In this episode, we speak with our friend, fellow podcaster, and now author, Melina Palmer. Melina is a wealth of knowledge on the application of behavioral science to the world of marketing. Yeah, as mentioned, Melina recently released her book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. It is a fantastic and very practical read for anybody who is in marketing or even just trying to create some influence in their lives. The book is packed with useful tools, tips, and real-world examples for taking behavioral science principles and applying them into your marketing programs. So we talked to her about the book, the process she took in developing it, dopamine, context, duh, gotta love that, and a few more wild ideas that we hope that you will find interesting. Hmm, wild ideas. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can handle any wild ideas. You know, I'm getting old, Tim, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, count, you're not the only one. But. Yeah, but all right. So we'll see. Okay. All right. With that, we invite you to sit back with your thinking cap on your brain in full business form, and a full glass of consumer understanding as we talk with Melina Palmer. Melina Palmer, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Behavioral Grooves there. This is not just welcome to, it's welcome back. Come on. Almost like a welcome yeah, back cotter. Okay, Melina, coffee or tea? Chai tea. Chai tea. I like that. You and my wife would get along absolutely wonderful. All right. So for people who are listening to this, we are recording this at the end of June 2021 because it's important as we think about this next question. So Seattle or the Sahara for weather this past week, Melina? <laughs> yeah, one in the same, I think, uh, in that way. So, uh, but I'll say Seattle because typically it's quite nice in the summer. <laughs> yeah, but but the past week it has been unreasonably hot there, record-breaking yeah. hot, right? So, yeah, 110 is not something that should happen in the Pacific Northwest. So, <laughs> yikes! <laughs> yeah, it's not the desert. It isn't the desert. It shouldn't be no. that way. All right. No. Okay. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite CMO or favorite researcher? Okay. Um, I would say researcher. Yes. Researcher. Anybody come to mind? I feel like, you know, at this point, I would like to, 
I've had some good conversations with Katie Milkman over this last year, and I think we've been really getting along, and I would love for the day when I get to meet her in person. So we'll say, say, Katie, coming for you. We're going to have, we'll have right. dinner. There you go. <laughs> Katie would be a fantastic. She would be fantastic for dinner. She's just like, not only is she brilliant, but she's just one of the nicest people in the freaking world. I mean, I oh my God. It just oozes out of her every every time we talk to her. Yeah. Yeah, she's Fantastic. so fun. And we totally bond over Harry Potter, which I don't know if she's brought that up over here or I just made her talk to me about Harry Potter on my show. But we both like Harry Potter, so <laughs> could talk about that. There you go. Well, I think it wasn't that her temptation bundle that she had to do. Yeah, wasn't that, that which, was, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is why I made her talk to me about it on my show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Big last question in the speed round, which is never a speed round. I don't know why we call it that. But anyway, here it is. <laughs> Which is more rewarding, publishing a podcast or publishing a book? Uh, I'm going to say I'm going to go with book in the optimistic thinking of the world. Since as we're talking now, my book came out just over a month ago. Um, And I think it does have some really good spread. There's something about being able to give people a tangible book that they get excited about where podcasting, you have a different reach. Oh, yay. <laughs> I see my book there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that tangible thing I think people really like. And anybody can go get or hand over you know, books and spread that knowledge. Whereas telling someone to listen to a podcast, maybe they've never done it before. So uh, they won't. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, you, you should have seen the contortions of Melina's face when she was as like having to pick between which is your, your favorite child. And she is like, oh, my God, I can't decide. I thought for sure you're going to go. I can't decide. I honor the speed round and I will choose. <laughs> <laughs> honor the speed round. Yep. Oh, that's, I think we're going to have to put that down as a quote. Here we go. Honor okay. The speed round. Okay. So. What your customer wants and they can't tell you. You are laser focused. One of the things that we love about your podcast is you are laser focused on your listeners with Brainy Business. Who was the book written for? In this case, it's written for anyone who is in business that has a career that they enjoy and they want to be able to up level whether they knew going in that they were looking for behavioral economics, behavioral science, or had just sort of been exploring around, but not looking to go become an academic researcher and change careers in that way, but to be able to actually get the tips for applying behavioral sciences in a reasonable, responsible way that they feel comfortable with in whatever their work is, whether they work at a global corporation or are an entrepreneur. You know, the tips are really for anybody in that space to be able to just go implement behavioral economics and start testing things out. So one of the things that I love about the book is the practical application piece of it. You do a fantastic fantastic job of taking concepts that sometimes are pretty ethereal and kind of out there and saying, nope, well, this is a concrete way of being able to apply that. So my my question then comes from, you've been doing the podcast for a while and you've had some really great interviews with a lot of great people. So how much of the podcast and the interviews that you did with people on the podcast is integrated into the book? 
it's interesting overlap of all the things and it, it how it all kind of worked out in that. So a lot of the book is based on the solo episodes. And so it's, the book is separated into four sections. The second one is, here are my top 16 concepts for business instead of, you know, I could talk about a zillion, let's just narrow on some you need to look at. And those are, again, solo episode ones. And then in part three is starting to combine them together. So this is how you could use anchoring relativity and framing together for pricing strategy or whatever Mm -hmm. that is. And when I was working on the book, you know, about a month before it was due to the publisher, I did a little call out on LinkedIn that I was thinking, you know, I could use a couple more applied stories. You don't get so much in applied because businesses lock stuff down. And so it can be hard to get stuff to share in that way. And I just did a, hey, will you help? Does anybody have a story that you can share? And I got like 200 responses. Oh my and gosh. it was Jez Groom and Richard Chataway and Aline Holsworth and just these amazing people reaching out to which said, I have to schedule as many of these as I possibly can and see what I can do and incorporate here. And so I met with as many as I could and found places to put their stories. And part three really got formed in the last like 30 days of like (laughs) to redo it. And so as I talked to each of them and, you know, Matt Wallert and again, just so many amazing people that I realized I should have interviews with them on the show. They're doing such cool stuff. And so I was able to pre schedule a whole bunch of interviews that came out in, you know, the six months before the book came out. And able to include them in the book to say this episode is here, you know, in the past, but it was in the future when I was writing. It It was kind of a weird (laughs) time. Yeah. (laughs) So there are quite a few interviews uh, and those insights that make their way in and they were able to be really strategically placed because of when I was talking with them. But the interviews that we ended up doing are what we talk about in the book is such a small piece of those conversations that I had with them on the podcast. And I really put in a lot of effort to make sure that even avid listeners that have been there for all three years of the show now and our three year anniversaries in five days. So really like, Oh my gosh, congratulations. Thank you. That, that it would still be new. You know, it's not like, Oh yeah, I've heard you talk about this. Oh yeah, I've heard that, but they were new stories and things like that. Yeah, that's important, uh, th- and that's I'm I'm glad that Kurt asked that question because I think that that's really important. That that just because you've been a listener to the Brainy Business doesn't mean that you're you already know the book. The book is different. It's yeah. it's a it's a wholly different piece of uh, content, and uh, you might have drawn from all that. But I'm really glad to hear that. You know, we got to see an early draft of the of the book with a different title yes. <laughs> at, at, at the time, and I'm just wondering, were there any you know, and, and as you said, like this, this creating a book is a dynamic process. So were there any things that got left out that, that now you, you kind of go, oh man, it would have been nice to have that one little nugget in. Is there anything that you have maybe not regret, but you think, oh, next time I want to make sure that this gets included. Well, anytime you're working on a book, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of things that don't make it (laughs) of what you originally planned or wanted. Uh, At first, the publisher asked for between 35,000 and 50,000 words. When I just pulled in the past podcast episodes, 
scripts, not interviews, just for the concepts, it was almost 200,000 words. Yeah. Whoa. So, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They gave me some leeway. It ended up more like 70,000 words. But um, through that, you lose a lot of great stuff. I, and I had to make the decision that anything that has to do with change management and internal communication is going to just be a different book. You know, anything right. that is in this pricing strategy, like I could do a little bit here, but I just need to write a pricing book, you know, those yeah. sorts of things. But being able to do a big sweep like that and know that it could happen later uh, made it okay. I would say the one thing is since I just interviewed, um, now I get to say Bob Cialdini uh, <laughs> for my podcast, I wish I would have been able to have and say that, you know, somewhere in the book, but can do that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating that what gets left on that cutting room floor, as you said, and just the amount of, of content. And sometimes I think we need to cut more of our podcast down, Tim, particularly when you and I talk and just cut that out of the actual end, end things. And there we go. So then we'd have content that people really like to listen to. Exactly. <laughs> if, if it wasn't us, it would be great. So there you go. All right. All right. Enough, enough uh, joking aside and realizing what we need to do for us. One of the things that you talk about in the book is about how the brain works. And I'm going to quote you. So this is going to be a here. It's going to be a quote. And you talk about here, quote, the dopamine release begins when the light comes on and is at its highest while pushing the button. It ends when the treat is released. All right. So this idea of the dopamine and various different pieces of this. So how how does that impact and translate into the experience of people making purchases, whether it be online, whether it's in working environments or the way they work in retail stores? What? So why should we care about dopamine? That's my big question for you. Yeah, and that is not my study for the world to know, right? So I'm not claiming <laughs> no. that I... <laughs> no. I, I think it's a rat study, study, so I think yes, it's... It uh, I'm pretty sure you're not I don't working work with rats, no. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorical or otherwise. Uh, so dopamine is really important when it comes to buying behavior because it's a huge piece of that habit building cycle. And one of the things that I like to talk about with anybody in, you know, on the business side is, you know, it feels like you need to give everyone everything all the time. And if you try to give one person a, a prize or something, you feel like you have to be fair and that everyone can get one sort of a deal. But that's expensive. It's not really a great business strategy on that pricing side. But also when you look at the dopamine, if you have the ability to have a big prize that people can win, then you are having this anticipation. And also when there was uncertainty that was incorporated into that study. Uh, so there was one version where, you know, the rat hits the lever 10 times, you get a treat. And every time you do it, you get a treat. And they had a certain level of dopamine. When it became a 50-50 shot on hitting the lever, the dopamine doubled that the rat was getting because of the, oh, is it going to happen? You, Our brain gets excited about that. So when you think about watching a great movie or playing Candy Crush or whatever it is, the moments of trying to see, am, am I going to make it? Am I going to win? Is it going to work? Is where the real thrill is. And then once you know you beat the level, you're like, meh, like, okay, I'm over it. 
<laughs> so it's a very real reinforcement piece, and 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 as they've we've talked about, uh, you know, in some of our episodes as well, is the the dopamine release is much higher when you do anything that has that element of a lottery, that has an element of a the Las Vegas is built around the idea of of this and so love that aspect of it and love the idea of thinking about that when you're you're making a buying purchase and making any of those types of decisions so cool but i'm also seeing marketers don't seem to be using lotteries as much today as i think maybe they did 10 or 15 years ago that's this is a not a scientific observation this is just a general observation. You know, this is a really powerful effect. Do you think they're kind of missing out? Do you think that they're, well, first of all, you can disagree with my premise. <laughs> I don't, again, this is just an opinion, but I don't know. Thoughts about that, Melina? Yeah, I'd say I don't, I don't have enough factual uh, data to be able to disagree with what you're saying, but knowing there was a time with, and I think, you know, where McDonald's came out with Monopoly was mm-hmm. when right. everybody then saw how amazing that was for them. And then you had, you know, Pepsi had their uh, competition with the labels and Taco Bell did something, you know, it was just everybody was doing that for a while. So I think that that maybe has settled in a little bit, like you said, but yeah, I think people are missing out on an opportunity, but you want to be able to know that you thought through why you're doing it and what the goal is and to make sure that it's going to be profitable for you over time. So, and you really actually want to have people win in that process. You need some winners so then you can show them off. You get the social proof and that it's going to be a valuable investment for you and your business and being able to get word of mouth and all these things that come in together. So knowing what the point is can determine if it's a good fit for you. It's not that a lottery is a fit for everyone every single time. Uh, But I really love the examples of, you know, where Ohio kind of kicked off the vaccine lotteries of being able to be drawn for, for winners to incentivize people in a way that's not about negatives and saying, well, you better because if you don't, this could happen. But instead to say, you should, because if you do, this great thing could happen. And then you have this other side that is potentially more motivating to get people to take an action. Yeah, it's interesting when you think through how all of those different facets work and the multiple layers that they work in, which is one of the powerful things that I think people don't necessarily always think through. They go, oh, it's a million dollar lottery. It's all of this, but you're going, yeah, but it, it motivates people in a way that isn't going to happen from the reverse side of this, that, that negative or the loss aversion side piece. It also motiv- it p- provides people, at least in the vaccine lottery, right? That it provides cover for people to say, I wouldn't normally do it. I only did it because of this so that they can stay, maintain their status within so-called tribes. There's a number of factors that, that come into play as we think about this. And I think that's the wonderful thing about behavioral science is that it brings in the multitude of ways that our brain kind of process information and then how that lends itself into our subsequent behavior and all of those facets. So if you had to take your book and say, here's the the reason why somebody should be reading my book. What would that one, you know, and again, you got a 30 second elevator pitch and somebody is, is <laughs> you're riding up the elevator with them. 
They're going, what do you do? I'm an author. You can say that now, by the way. You know, I'm an author. Oh, what's your book? Oh, here it is. Well, why should I read it? What, how would you answer? I would say that it is something that will allow you to be more effective in really anything you do in business communication. And so you don't have to invest a lot more in big marketing promotions and perhaps changing a word here or an image there could give you some really big lift when you understand the principles of what's actually happening in the brain and just, yeah, have better conversations with peers and family and communicating with customers. Cool. Fantastic. I yeah. was going to say better, better understanding of, of, of family. And I'm like, oh, no, that's good. Does it help? Will it help with me and Tim? Because, I mean, we, we don't communicate very well. There's no hope for you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I, I love about the book is that you hit on, you know, all the all the major hits within the behavioral community, right? All the, all of the great biases and, and heuristics. One of my favorites was priming. You know, when you talked about that, I just think that that's that's pretty cool. And I'm just again, I I just like to hear in your words, why is priming such an important tool for for the marketers? Why is it such an important thing for understanding what your customer wants and can't tell you? I think that priming is one of there's a reason it's the second of the concept chapters. It's a foundational foundation <laughs> of, of concepts, <laughs> and it's one that is such a simple tweak you can make here or there in a way that can make such a big difference. So in a marketing space, and a lot of the book, you know, the beginning of it's talking about the difference between businesses and brands and and this. So it is catered to that brand strategy space more than anything. But when you look at the imagery that you're using, and it may feel like, oh, we'll just throw, here's a picture, let's just use that one. That person looks reasonably happy and they happen to be holding a credit card, but you aren't realizing that because they also have a briefcase in in their hand that it could be sending the wrong message or the color choice that you have could be a little bit off. Or if the packaging doesn't have a spot that you send something out where people have that power of touch, uh, there are all these little tiny tweaks that come with the prime in image choice so much more than anything where people are using stock photos and think it's good enough and it can't be that big of a difference. And this is to say, absolutely <laughs> can be a huge difference. And you have to be really, really specific. I had a was speaking at a conference a couple of years back and uh, you know someone was just asking me, hey, I just put this together. What do you think? Um, and they had a picture of a person and they actually did a photo shoot. Um, but the the guy was sort of squinting in a way that his nose was like crinkled up just a little bit to which oh. it's like, you can't, you can't use it. <laughs> yeah. That is such a huge reaction for us as humans of thinking Ugh, and having that kind of disgust yeah. factor that you, you just can't do it. And a tiny little thing like that makes yeah. such a difference. You mentioned Jez Groom is one of the the people that you talked to before and kind of got some insights from some of those those things. And I'm doing some work with him right now and in his group, Cowrie Consulting. And it's fascinating because, again, they did some really cool research that I wasn't aware of earlier. And again, it was with a client. So hopefully I'm not um, divulging anything here. But just the like where the eyes are looking in a communication too from people, the the 
they did a heat map and they showed two different heat maps of two different images that were almost exactly the same. And looking down at the pricing, you know, that was, or the, the, the offer that was below this, this picture. And when the person was looking straight forward, the people's focus looked at that person. And I think, I don't know, do you see people doing that enough or is that one of the bigger issues in when you're doing your consulting work? Yeah, I definitely am able to pick up on those pretty quickly of, you know, a, a tiny thing of like, where's the person pointing? Where are their eyes looking? If For anybody who, if you already follow me on social media, thank you very much. If you don't, I'm the Brainy Biz. And pretty much every time when you see something of a picture of me, I'm either, my eyes are very specifically looking kind of up or, and I, there are some where I'm like pointing at something, which is the title or the episode number or whatever it is, something to look at. And if you don't have, there could be artwork just in the background that you think, well, it's a watermarked thing. It's back there. It doesn't really matter where it's pointing. Again, it does. It it makes a difference. And in that conversation we were just having, it made me think of another example. I'm so glad I was able to incorporate in the book, which uh, was a study done by Deck Tech. And they used priming as one of 18 different interventions to help reduce opportunistic insurance fraud in the UK, which was a billion pound problem of this, you know, I know my 16-year-old son's going to be the one driving the car, but I'll just put myself down. Like that little in the moment where you have that kind of nudgeable choice uh, was costing a billion pounds a year across the industry, which means everyone's rates go up. Pounds being the the English monetary, not, not yeah. a thousand yeah. pounds of weight. There yeah, we I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but they, what they did is one of the tests for priming was that when you had to do the CAPTCHA to prove that you're not a robot, the word was honesty that Uh you type. And don't even think about it. You have to do that. And I believe it was... 40% 40% up to 50%. They, there were different stats um, on all these interventions. So apologies if I misquote that. Um, but about half that it reduced those fraudulent decisions, which is, you know, 500 million <laughs> saved. <laughs> it's a huge yeah. difference from something yeah. people don't even notice. So, Melina, uh, priming is one of obviously Tim and mine's favorite uh, concepts. And one of the pushbacks that we've been seeing or, or recently having is that, you know, a lot of the the studies on priming haven't necessarily replicated. Yeah, uh, so I, I did put a note about it in the book and saying in the case of anybody who's looking to apply the behavioral sciences, you shouldn't assume everything is generalizable anyway. So context matters. There are so many factors going on. You can't just say, well, it worked in Australia with nurses, so it'll work in Africa with marketers, right? I mean, it's just not going to work that way. Uh, So that is one thing. Um, And in the book, the caveat I'm giving there is, I I just want you to think about this, even if it's not exactly right, and you're not going to have the perfect lift. And it's not always a backpack versus a briefcase or the holding the iced coffee versus the hot coffee. The point is the brain makes very literal associations and it can make a difference. So incorporate it into your testing protocols because it does influence. The concept is valid. 
even if we can't perfectly replicate an exact study that happened on a campus somewhere. Yeah, it's tricky. It really is tricky. And that's uh, it's great to have super great examples. But one of the things I do love about the book is your your willingness that from time to time, you want the the reader to stop and uh, do an inventory, write some things down, be conscious, be intentional about this. And I think that that's... uh, that uh, it's it's not just unique, but um, I think it's important uh, that that you call that out. Was that was that early in the design? Was that sort of like oh, I got to make sure that at least from time to time, I'm I'm getting the readers to stop and do something to really get them to sort of use that system to thinking rather than just reading through the stuff. Yeah, the so having those at the end of each chapter, basically in parts two and three, mm-hmm. there is a apply it yourself section and it has actual spots for notes and things like that. So you can just try a little bit. I do that in my presentations when I'm speaking to groups. I do that in consulting. There's a lot of information there in the, you know, book has 299 pages and 201 citations. There's a lot going on. And so making sure that you take just a second to say, yes, I cared about this. What about that? Ask a good question. And then you can go on. You can always revisit it later and help it to be reinforced. In addition to that, uh, I created a PDF workbook that's a companion workbook that's free that anybody can go get. It doesn't have a lot of value when you don't have the book, but you can go get it. It's 111 pages of extra worksheets (laughs) 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 because I can't help myself. You know, the podcast has lots of worksheets associated with it and I just want people to apply it. For me, The worst thing that would be coming from this book is that it sits on a bunch of shelves and people don't actually apply what's there. That's that would be the hardest part. I really want people to use it. That's the point. And so I gave a lot of extras to make it so they can. Well, it was particularly difficult for me because I'm fortunate enough to have a signed edition here. And I always write in my books like I always make notes. I mean, you know, we're we're you know this, we're interviewing people constantly, right? So thinking, uh, oh, this might make an interesting question. And I couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to make a single tiny, even nothing, not not a mark in this Aww. one. I just want it to be pristine. So. For, when, for when you become huge and we can say, we got this, there you we go. Have an, then we have an autograph copy, yeah. Yeah, so. one of those first ones. <laughs> Did you ever think about you know, writing one more page so you could get up to 300 pages. Does, does that ever it's funny. <laughs> I had, uh, I have had people ask uh, when I was doing, I had my like book launch team, like what's the science behind the 299? Like, you know, I'm sorry. That was a, that was a publishing choice. I had nothing to do with it. It sort of just worked out in that way. Uh, but I feel like it's a good anchor where if 300, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of pages, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. But then we get the bump up for 201 citations, you know, so it feels like, whoa, that's a lot of citations. So, yeah, we'll say that's why, but it was more of the way it it all shook out. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Could we take a a step back and and not about the book? And I I know that we talked about this on our um, previous uh, discussion for, for the Behavioral Groups podcast, but what caused you to fall in love with behavioral economics? You know, I when I did my undergrad, which is in marketing, uh, there was just a little tidbit in a book, one tiny snip that was about the psychology of buying behavior and decisions. I had actually looked at going into psychology 
before I got into business school. And so I, I thought that was just really amazing. And I wanted to figure out more. And I spent 10 years looking for programs that didn't exist yet. And so um, when I was in this innovation program and they brought in speakers from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, I just knew that this was what I had to get into. And the way that you can just understand all these nuances in the brain, I just find to be incredibly fascinating. And for whatever reason, my brain works in a way that I'm making connections that other people often don't. Like where you said, taking the academic papers and being able to really quickly boil it down and say, this is what matters and this is what you should do with it and go off and enjoy and like, oh, that's sort of like this other thing that's totally unrelated uh, comes naturally to me. So it is a, a joy whenever I read any of it. I find everything to be just amazing and fascinating. All right. To go back to the book, right? Yeah. The title of your book <laughs> okay. is What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. So what is the biggest secret that customers are sitting on that they just can't tell us? Haha, <laughs> uh, they don't know. <laughs> it's not that they, yeah, right? It's not that they won't tell you. The can't is a very intentional word. And also, there was discussion over if it's and can't tell you versus but can't tell you. You know, how does that oh, all wow. go together? Yeah. Um, so, specificity in those that just that they don't even know. And so, using the science to understand what's happening so that you can better predict what's going to happen. Even when you do the foc focus groups are still important surveys and, and qualitative research and quantitative is good, but you're one of my favorite quotes that I came up with within the book was, you know, if you think about right now, you just are making marketing stuff, hoping it's going to work. It's like thro throwing noodles at the wall, hoping something is going to stick. And so yeah. I say, you know, Properly applied behavioral economics allows you to throw darts while your competition's continuing to throw noodles. So having a little <laughs> bit of an idea of what's coming makes a difference. I, I noticed recently that uh, there's a new book out by Philippa Roberts and Jane Cunningham, and it's called Brand Splaining: How Marketing mm -hmm. is Still Sexist and How to Fix It. I don't know if you've seen this or if, if you've even seen the title or if you've had a chance to read it, but I was just curious about your thoughts about, about that. Do you think that marketing is still sexist? I love the title of this and have not had a chance to read it yet. It's one I have on my list, so I'm excited to check it out. And yes, <laughs> Just, I mean, <laughs> there you go. Okay, everything is there. Stereotypes and biases are involved in really everything that exists. It's not to say that every single thing is, but there are still uh, hurdles to overcome and things that can be changed for the better. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thanks for just jumping in on that. I just, I just, I, I haven't read it either, I, but I saw the title and uh, ordered the book because I'm fascinated by the title. So we're going to have to chest that out. Can we, uh, we only have a few minutes left here, uh, but can we flip over to the desert island and imagine what three artists you might be taking with you if you ha had to spend a year on a desert island? Are we talking musical artists? Musical, musical artists. I'm sorry. In my Tim, world, an artist is a musical artist. He talks music. Come on. I yeah. assumed, you know, I, I know where I am. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so top of my list, which might not be surprising to you, would be that Paul McCartney, you know, where I said like Abbey Road, I think is the best album of all time. So Paul McCartney, 
in the mix, no matter what, um, that I would definitely want him there. I feel like maybe mix it up to be something that's just fun personality and interesting life stories. Let's say like a Lady Gaga and, um, you know, I, because I listen to my John Mayer radio station, like feel like you gotta, <laughs> we'll just say John Mayer. Why not? <laughs> Didn't you actually curate like this monstrous John Mayer yeah, Spotify my- list? <laughs> It's in our it's in our it's in our show notes from the last one because you sent it to us. Yeah, it's my Pandora station. Like I said, it sounds much fancier than it is that I've been doing lots of like thumbs up and thumbs down for now, probably 12 years on this single station. And so it's very specific of what you can listen to. So, yeah, I I love it. I love it. Well done. Melina, before we, we go, you also are teaching a course. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. So I actually am one of the, um, I guess, main instructors at Texas A&M University in our certificate in applied behavioral economics, which launched uh, in the fall of 2020 as a first time having students enroll for that and is ongoing. So uh, you can always go to hbl.tamu.edu and go check that out. It's all virtual. So we have students in Japan and Germany and Peru and the U.S. and just helping anybody to learn about applying behavioral economics to business. And so is this the class that you wish you would have been able to have when you were interested in this? I would say, yeah, I I enjoyed all the classes of my master's program and (laughs) the how you go do something with it, I think, is missing. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I launched the podcast. It's uh, why I... uh, nudged the world for the a lot of what happened in the certificate program so yeah i would say yes fantastic so uh, as now we can kind of wrap this up with our you know thank you fantastic book and you know for our listeners a listen to the brainy business podcast but b go out and buy the book there'll be a link in the show notes you can just click on that and and write a review too because i know that's always a really big piece of all of this so melina thank you thanks so much With that, folks, we wrap up our conversation with Melina, and we hope you enjoyed all of the insights about applying behavioral science into your marketing and influence programs and your messaging. To hear more about what Tim and I thought of the conversation, tune in to the next episode, which is our grooving session about this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.